Throughout history, angels have been an integral part of many different religions. Artists have portrayed the heavenly beings as caring spirits, messengers of God, and protectors of humankind. Today, more and more people are becoming aware of the angelic presence in their lives. One person who sensed an angel presence in her life and responded to it is Bridget Fonger, who opened an angel store in Pasadena. I believe that throughout my life I've had angel experiences. Now looking back, and I think that all of us have, it's just a matter of being aware of what, what that is. Some people call it synchronicity. Some people call it a religious experience. Some people call it, you know, this, just this weird thing happened to me. Or some people call it ghosts or spirits or talking with the other side. And Do you think people really believe in angels? Children believe in angels. And... Most of the time, people never really lose that belief. It gets covered up or they forget. But now, angels are coming back into mainstream and uh, social, socially acceptable thinking. We interviewed Karen Goldman, who has written books on angels. When angels came to me as a topic, it started just by exploring what an angel is from within. Um, I started getting answers about how everything connects. And, you know, angels as a symbol, everything we know about angels is that they can appear on earth. They're also heaven from heaven. Um, they're with people when they die. Um, they transcend all the worlds. They're kind of, they're messengers between the light and the dark. And this woman named Joanne. Karen told us a story about a woman named Joanne who was a foster parent for young children and babies. She said that from a sound sleep, she a bright light woke her up, and she heard a voice say, Joanne, get up and sit at the foot of the bed. So she it woke her up. She immediately picked up the baby, got up, and sat at the foot of the bed. And as soon as she got to the foot of the bed and sat down, there was a tremendous earthquake <laughs> and glass from a great big window that was beside the bed shattered and fell all over the bed and would have cut herself and the baby. We visited Bridget Fonger's angel store to see what sort of angels we could find there. You really do have every kind of angel here. I try. <laughs> Why did you open the store? Um, I had a series of sort of angelic experiences, and the first of which was my little friend um, died last year when he was two and a half. His name was Gavin Murray. And he was like a living angel. And when he was alive, I always, I made a lot of angel paintings for him. He died of cancer. He was a big inspiration for the story, and I have felt his presence a lot. I've never seen a pair of angel wings this big. Where'd you get these? These wings are the result of one of the hundreds of synchronistic events that went to the opening of this store. Um, I was shopping one day and I saw this man across the room and he had these rare Indian beads on and at one point he looked over and I took that as an invitation to ask him about these beads because they're very rare special beads and I said did you get those in India and he said yeah have you been to India? And I said yeah several times and he said were you there in 1989? And I said Yes, and he said, I remember you. And we had been at the same ashram in 1989, and he remembered me. I didn't remember him. But anyway, he, um, 
we started talking at the end of our conversation, I handed him my car at the angel store and he said, angel store, I was just on the phone about my angel wings. And I said, you're what? And he said, because I'd been looking for angel wings for the store and he said, yeah, let's put them in your store. I made these wings for Sharon Stone for the cover of Premier Magazine. They're really beautiful. I'm sure you'll love them and, and everybody loves them. I had... Bridget told us about a time when her back had locked and she arranged for a professional massage to ease the pain. She came to my house and she did shiatsu and it was an amazing experience and as the massage was going on, I was becoming, my back was unlocking and... I was working on Bridget and as I was on the side of her body, I began to kind of see in my mind's eye this feminine presence. It was an amazing massage and I felt that I was healing as it was going on but I was thinking God is this all of this pain gonna go away because it seemed like a lot that she was gonna have to do I just let it be there for a while and I uh, wasn't going to say anything about it I was just gonna move along and continue my healing work on her body um, but it stayed with me for quite a while she was holding me in a way and I felt that something else was holding me, something bigger than me. And I saw this golden color. This glowing kind of hair, golden. It, it looked like hair, but maybe it wasn't hair. It just had that image because it was very long and it flowed outward. But the most extraordinary part of the massage was at the end, um, Laura was sort of finishing up and had her hands on my head and neck area. And she pulled her hands away and I felt her pull her hands away and then I felt another pair of hands come into the same place where her hands had just been and they weren't her hands but I didn't want to say those aren't your hands are they because I felt like either it would ruin if it was something like different or she would say oh yeah they are my hands are, are you crazy <laughs> I let it be there for a while because I didn't want to, I wasn't going to say anything to Bridget and disturb her and I didn't really know how open she'd be to anything like that going on. I wasn't even sure how open I was at that moment. And I saw that same golden light that I had seen and then I saw this like deep bright pink and deep bright blue and it was like there was like an enormous woman standing above me. And then it started to retract, it started to pull back up and through me and then recede a little bit. Colors like blues and pinks that were just rushing down as if to say it was uh, some dress or something, but it was just a rush of intense colors. And we sat there and compared stories and she says, well, what kind of blue? Was it really intense blue? Was it really, in a, and I said, yes, that was it. It was intense blue. And it, was, it wasn't like a, a pastel pink. It was a really intense pink. And we just kind of went back and forth on the details of what we had experienced. And it was, neither of us was making up any of it. And we were just sort of understanding that this thing that I thought had happened and that she thought had happened had truly happened. It changes the way you see everything. You see the magic in all things and, and life isn't ordinary and that no matter how solid or how real the world can get on the freeways or any of these things, you begin to see that there's truly magic behind every door, behind everything. Everything we know about angels is that they can appear on earth. They're also heaven from heaven. Um, they're with people when they die. Um, they transcend all the worlds. They're kind of, they're messengers between the light and the dark. Then Elijah lay down under the tree and fell asleep. All at once, 
An angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there, by his head, was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank, and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled forty days and forty nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. The bond between mother and child begins the instant a woman perceives life in her womb. And once established, this connection grows into a love so complete that for the sake of her child's safety, a mother will do anything, even lay down her own life. Ironically, this ultimate act of a mother's love also brings about the end of her maternal devotion. Or does it? Some people believe that Chrissy Scoopish loved her son so much that not even death could keep her from safeguarding him. Some believe that before departing this world, Chrissy got help from the next world to ensure the survival of her only child. Chrissy's story begins with a dream her aunt had. I dreamed of me sitting in the back seat of a car. It was night, and I could see a silhouette of a little boy standing in a seat. And I could see a woman driving, and all I could see out of the window was um, just light. Karen had previously had dreams, which turned out to be precursors to family misfortune. Though she could not decipher this dream's exact meaning, she knew it did not bode well. Two days later, she learned Chrissy and her little boy, Nick, were missing. Last seen on Highway 50 in Northern California, Chrissy was driving to Nevada and then on to Southern California to see her Aunt Karen. When she didn't arrive where she was supposed to arrive, I figured, you know, she just changed her mind. So I didn't really get worried about it for a day or two, and then I did. Then I did. An investigation was initiated, but the authorities had little to go on. At one point, a man reported seeing an unusual sight on Highway 50, but no one felt it was case-related until later. He had a cellular phone, and he stopped right there, and from the spot, called 911 because he's seen a woman running backwards and forth on the side of the road there. Meanwhile, Karen's concern for Chrissy grew. I mean, I had no idea if she had been abducted, if she had been in a wreck. I didn't know why she was missing. Karen knew her worrying was only wasting precious time and decided to focus her energy on pinpointing her niece's location. When I would... Um, try to visualize where she could be. I could only see those exits out of Placerville. Though the vision was not clear, Karen's desire to find Chrissy was. So she and her husband, John, set out on an eight-hour trek to Placerville, a town not far from where the woman was seen running on the road. At about the same time, Deborah Hoyt and her husband, Nicholas, were leaving Placerville. Like Chrissy, they were driving toward Nevada, on Highway 50. Deborah was watching for deer, but what she saw 
was the most shocking thing she'd ever witnessed. Lying on the roadside was the nude body of a woman. She was really, really white. I kept remembering to myself that she must have been in the cold for a long time to be so white. Horrified by the ghastly discovery, the Hoyts raced to a nearby telephone where Deborah notified the California Highway Patrol. She stood by and waited for them and went into the CHP vehicle with one of the CHP officers and searched the area. However, they were unable to find anything. They thought it was kind of strange because she was very sincere in what she believed she saw. But what had Deborah seen? Though the officers conducted a thorough search, a body could not be found. Nor was there evidence that one had ever been there. Was Deborah mistaken? Was there really a nude woman on the road? She was serious and, and believed that's what she'd seen and was still upset when they weren't able to find um, the body which she believed she'd seen. As the officers investigated Deborah's claim, Karen had another premonition. I just felt there was going to be something on the side of the road that would be a belonging, a toy, a ring. I didn't know. If Chris had been there, there was going to be something I was going to find. Karen arrived in Placerville about dawn and notified the sheriff's department that she and her husband planned to search Highway 50 on foot to find whatever that something was. Deputy Strasser was on duty at the time, and seeing the determination in Karen's eyes, decided it would be best if he accompanied her. With Karen and John a distance behind him, the deputy led them down Highway 50. Because it was now daylight, Deputy Strasser felt he should also follow up on the Deborah Hoyt sighting. He drove to the spot where the nude woman had been reported. When he got there, he didn't find a body, but he did find something that was not there the night before. Near what we call Bullion Bend, east of Pollock Pines, I found a child's tennis shoe in the roadway. The shoe was Nick's, and further investigation revealed the wreckage of a car. The car was in pretty bad shape. It, it had hit a tree and kind of tumbled a little bit. And I found in the driver's seat, I found a, a white female. It was Chrissy. Unfortunately, she had perished in the crash. I looked over and I saw a young, nude boy basically lying in the passenger seat in a fetal position. And I believe both of them were killed as a result of the accident. But Nick was alive, a fact many found amazing, because the three-and-a-half-year-old had been without food or water for over five days. Also during that time, the temperatures had ranged from 40 degrees at night to over 100 degrees during the day. It is believed Nick removed his clothing when the heat became too much for him. Suffering from hypothermia and severe dehydration, Nick was rushed to a nearby hospital. The doctor said if Nick had been there another hour, two hours, that he wouldn't have. I mean, Nicky was close to death when he was found. But thanks to Karen's premonitions and Deputy Strausser's police work, Nick was found in time and recovered. But what of the dead woman on the roadside? Is she owed a debt of gratitude as well? Her presence did bring attention to the site, which in turn brought Nick's rescuers. Some have speculated that what Deborah saw was Chrissy Skubish's ghost. But Chrissy's family rejects that theory. 
I don't believe in ghosts, but I do believe in angels. And Chrissy felt very strongly that God appointed to each and every child of his a guardian angel. I mean, she was a strong believer in that. I believe, I feel, that it was her or Nikki's guardian angel. Nick's conversations since the accident seemed to confirm his grandmother's belief. When a baby does say things they see, you have to listen. And he did say that he'd seen a naked woman. He said there was two. One lady was running on the road. He could see her running back and forth. And he, we asked, where was the other one? And he said she was standing next to the car door by him. Was the naked woman Nick saw a guardian angel? If so, why was she so agitated? Nikki was there. Nikki was still alive. God had to draw attention to that area some way. Nick himself has talked of angels visiting him while he waited to be rescued. He has told his grandmother that he's seen, he's seen Jesus' angels and that they're very pretty. And when asked how his shoe mysteriously appeared on the road, Nick gave an unexpected response. And I said, did you, did it fall out of the car? And he said, I don't know. And then he said, maybe, his word, maybe, maybe Angel put it there. And I said, maybe, Nicky, maybe. He'll tell you that my mommy died. And you tell him you know. And, and he said, but I died too. And I was with Jesus. Did Nick die and go to heaven? If so, why was he sent back? God's got a plan for Nikki. Now, what it may be, I don't know. But there was a reason why God kept him alive. I intend to be there when he gets there and help him there. I'm going to help him along the way, and I'm going to be there when he achieves whatever it is God has in mind for him. I mean, things like this don't happen every day. Brenda and her husband, Dave, have recently adopted Nick. And a year after losing his mother, Nick is doing just fine. He has even mastered saying his new name. Nick, Nick Anthony Scooby-Strassenbach. <laughs> no one can be certain what the future holds for Nick, who has been called a miracle boy. But whatever God does have in store for him, it's certain that Chrissy will be watching over her child with a mother's love that will not die. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. In 1979, actor Eric Estrada was living the Hollywood dream, a dream which began shortly after he was cast in Chips, a television series 
about the adventures of the California Highway Patrol. But it was because of this very dream that in an instant, Eric's world became a living nightmare. It began with the filming of a routine action scene. It was a shot where me and Larry, Larry Wilcox, who was my partner in, in, on the show, and we're running out of a building, we jump on the bikes, and we're chasing a car. But then something went terribly wrong. And instead of being seated on top of his motorcycle, Eric suddenly found the massive bike on top of him. The first one to my side was Larry Wilcox. It was obviously pretty serious, but I didn't know. And um, having been in the Marine Corps and Vietnam and all that stuff, I was pretty used to that kind of situation. And he kept me from going into shock as he kept me in the present. And he was quite helpful because at that time, my lungs were punctured. And I had a big gash, but there was no blood coming out of my body. It was all internal bleeding. And it was filling up my lungs. So I had to, I had to really suck air on my own. And then the pain to boot. And then the ambulance came, and I rode with him in the ambulance to the hospital. And then it got really serious. I'll never forget it. I, I could see in his eyes death. And I've seen it, you know, I know what it looks like. There's a fear in their eyes that's beyond normal fear. It's almost like the spirit's leaving the body. Though the finality of death loomed over him, Eric's will to live kept him conscious while the doctors raced to save his life. They lay me down on a slab. They start cutting the clothes away, the boots, the uniform off me. I recall the priest coming in and giving him his last rites. They had anticipated that he had ruptured his aorta in his heart, so, you know, it could be in a matter of seconds. And um, they had to do either open-heart surgery immediately or he would be dead. But then some miracle happened. He didn't have to have open-heart surgery. But Eric's other conditions, including collapsed lungs, numerous broken ribs, and several unspecified internal injuries, required that he be transferred to a different hospital. So then I was uh, helicoptered from there to UCLA by the Sheriff's Department. And it was in the intensive care unit at UCLA where I had an out-of-body experience. The term out-of-body experience has become quite popular lately, but it's not a new phenomenon. One of the earliest uses of the expression dates back to the days of the Bible, when the Apostle Paul wrote, and I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. God knoweth. The belief in a soul or a spirit existing within the confines of our physical bodies is common in cultures throughout the world. But less common is the notion that this aspect of our being is in fact a conscious entity which is able to wholly separate itself from the physical body and venture out on its own. In Burma, the withdrawal of this life force is likened to that of a butterfly leaving a cocoon. The Azandi tribe in Africa believe the separation of body and soul occurs every single night as one sleeps. It has been reported that the separation could be two inches or 2,000 miles or more 
but there are limits to what one spirit entity can do. It cannot be seen by those in the physical realm. Eric explains. I was lying in bed in intensive care, and there at the foot of my bed were four people that I knew. A friend of mine from New York, my dad, who was in a wheelchair, he's always been in, in, in a wheelchair, uh, my mother, and a friend of the family who was dating my mother, and they were, st they were looking at me, but they had really sad faces on, and my mother was crying. So I, I got out of the bed and walked towards them, and, and I was maybe three, four inches away, five inches away from them, and, and they didn't see me. They just kept looking, like, looking through me. They were looking past me, and I turned around, and I saw what they were looking at. Eric's spirit was no longer in his body. Shocked at the eerie sight, Eric instinctively understood that the only way he would ever leave the intensive care unit alive was by re-entering his physical self. I think what it did for me at the moment was I didn't like what I saw. I didn't like seeing myself like that. And I didn't want to be there. So I said, I'm getting out of here. And the next morning, I was taken out of intensive care. Reflecting back on the incident, Eric feels he had help in making the decision to return to his body. I think maybe I was grabbed by my guardian angel and, and was given a choice if I wanted to stay, not get back in the body. But I choose to, to get out of there. Larry also feels Eric's recovery was divinely achieved. I would have to say that it was a miracle and that uh, an intervening force uh, greater than human beings, and uh, in my lay opinion, that's God. Eric has never again had another out-of-body experience, but the one incident was enough to give him a new perspective on celestial beings and the afterlife. I hope that one, after my death, that I get to be a guardian angel to some youngster. Oh, yeah, I believe in guardian angels. Tragedy is an entity that strikes at any time, any place. No one can prepare for the horrors that may arise in life. It's something that most would rather not think about. One young lady, unfortunately, had no choice. Here's her courageous story of survival. On just an ordinary morning, a woman did the most extraordinary thing. As flames engulfed her neighbor's home, she confronted the raging fire head on, while 70% of her body was still covered with unhealed burns from her own horrific encounter. It all started with a trip. Rennell and Terry Wallace had planned to try to patch their broken marriage. With their own small aircraft, the world's problems were beneath them. But with this trip, a little voice warned Rennell not to go. The feeling came so strong that I literally started to pull a pad out from behind me and started to write out my last will and testament. I, I begged her not to go, but for some reason she had the feeling that she had to go, that it was, that it was something that she had to do. A heavy storm hit. Things started getting out of control. We saw a little dirt road, and he says, that's it for now. We're going to make an emergency landing on that dirt road. After a very shaky landing, Rennell and Terry were just glad to put their feet on solid ground. Rennell refused to get back in the plane. 
Being in a small, faraway town, Terry said they had no other option. He says, Rennell, there's an airport that's only 15 minutes by flight. He says, what can happen in 15 minutes? Once in the air, Rennell could almost immediately see the dim outlines of the next town through the dense fog. She took a deep breath. They were going to make it, after all. The plane came into a mountain um, head on, and we hit the mountain at 200 miles per hour. And parts of the plane started to fly everywhere. Sparks were coming up out of the plane. I saw a little cliff, and I knew that once we had nosed into the cliff, that it would be over. And just literally within moments of crashing into this large pile of rocks, we came to a dead halt. I was shocked. I said, oh my gosh, we just survived a plane crash. Because at that point, there was not a, a scratch or bruise on me. And then Terry started screaming, get out, get out. I quickly started to undo my seatbelt, but as I did, I noticed the shoes on my feet started melting like butter off my feet. The fuel inside the aircraft met with the flames outside. It just was an instant inferno. It felt like someone took a blowtorch, lit it, and it just inflamed right in your face. And then just then, um, as you see a strong muscular hand kind of like this, came out kind of from behind me like this. I just saw a little bit like that, and I just felt this. I just felt peace and tingling go from the center in both directions, and, and I felt I wasn't going to get hurt. On the other side of the plane, Rennell was on fire. The pain of the flames literally drove me down to my knees. I started to crawl across the wingtip as the flames were coming up along the side. The drizzle finally doused the fire on Rennell's body. As I sat on the rock, the smoke started to come up over my body, and there was a dead silence. The aircraft was now a pile of melting metal swallowed up in the blaze. Terry was nowhere in sight. At that moment, I started to notice a movement inside the flame. It was Terry walking out of the flames toward Rennell. As he came over to the end of the wingtip, he started to look in the fog kind of bewildered. He says, Rennell, where's the man that pulled me out? I said, Terry, there was no man. No one had seen or heard the crash. A grueling five-mile hike down a mountain through a dense forest began. They had no idea where they were going. Eventually, a truck driver noticed the horrifying sight beside the road. Well, for the first time, I saw myself in the mirror, and I started to scream. My head was swollen out to the distance of my shoulder. My face was black and charred. The physical and emotional pain overwhelmed Rennell. Her body went into shock, and then cardiac arrest. And at the moment it became very black, I started to feel like my feet were going first into a very tight tunnel. And flashes of light started flashing by me at great speed. What was similar to other near-death experiences, Rennell also encountered a vision that would force her to cling to whatever life was left in her. I moved into the path and I saw a young man coming toward me. He was tall and he was handsome. This young man told Rennell that she had to return to Earth, that he needed her to be there in order for him to be born. Rennell came back to life, but constantly hovered on the brink of death. I think it's unimaginable to most of us. The, the hurt, the pain, they didn't think she would live. 
But she did pull through, and just as miraculous, faith triumphed, and Rennell and Terry's love reignited, saving their failing marriage. After months in the hospital, she could go home and see her two children again. Coming home was probably the hardest moment that I think I can remember, because when I came home, I was wearing this mask. Rennell's mother prepared the children. Probably one of the most traumatizing experiences that I had was when Jason first saw me. Um, he grabbed my mom's leg and he started to shake and he started to scream and all I wanted to do was just put my arms around him and tell him it was gonna be okay. And I said, Jason, I am your mom and I do love you. And in the tears he smiled and he turned around and he grabbed my neck and he never did let go. After hundreds of operations and skin grafts, Ronell was finally on the road to a long and traumatic recovery. But one morning, months after the tragic accident, Ronell faced her biggest obstacle yet. I had just unwrapped all the wrappings off of my body, and they were on a pile on the floor, and Terry had just come out of the shower. Terry noticed the neighbor's house was on fire. I ran to the front door. I started banging on it, and no one answered. She ran inside the garage. The smoke was very dense, and I started to choke. Screaming was the only thing she could do to wake the family inside the burning house. Once everyone was safely outside, it was just a matter of minutes before the house collapsed. In her speaking and in her book, she's done a lot of good. She's come a long, long way, a long, long way. She's touched a lot of hearts and a lot of people. So that the experience has really turned into somewhat a positive thing. And to hear her speak makes me proud. <laughs> I, I look at her every day and just wonder, you know, how she's still here. Ronell and Terry had only one more wish, to have more children. They told me I'd never have kids again. Once again, Ronell beat the odds. But shortly before giving birth, she had another vision. As I was laying there on the bed, I saw an image of a young man standing next to me. And he said, thank you, Mom. And I said, thank you, Nathaniel. And that moment they came in, they turned me around and I had my son. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. I must have been probably 10 or 11 years old, and um, we were having family prayers normal. And as we were praying, I felt a very special presence in the room. 
and I opened my eyes and right by my father was um, a man dressed in white, um, very, very bright and um, pure, and he had his hand on my dad's shoulder. I recognized this person, although I'd never seen him before, and I knew that I loved this person very much. When Laura's brother Matthew was born a year later, she instinctively realized he was the person she had seen in her vision. I know that Matthew was an angel and that he came before he was born. Near-death experiences have given us a glimpse into what many people consider to be the afterlife. But now the question arises, could there be a life before life? Much of our research includes parents who have seen an unborn child before it has been born or conceived. We might look at the pre-birth experience as part of a continuum, uh, earth life being in the middle and life after life going off into eternity this way. But where did we come from before coming to Earth? Uh, that's the pre-birth research. Another category are children, specifically, who remember their pre-mortal life. Loretta Park, mother of five, has first-hand experience. Starting out as an ordinary car trip home, Chad, at the time four years old, called his mother's attention to a building next to the road. He says, Mama, there, look, there's a castle. And I said, what castle? You know, I'm busy, I'm thinking graduation. And he says, look, there's the castle where I used to live. And just then I just knew that this was not an ordinary conversation we were having. This was a little different. He says, that's where he lived before he came down, that he had seen, his, seen me and Rod and, and Brandon and, and Nicole before he came down. And he said, that's where Jesus lived. Even more astonishing was what Chad revealed to his mother next. And he says, my little sister's up there and she's crying because you forgot her. It was then when Loretta remembered the extraordinary dream she'd had only a few years before. It was like I was in this wonderful place and there was this room with all these pictures in it and there was all these women in there. And this one picture was of this of a, of a beautiful little girl. She had long blonde hair and big blue eyes. And I thought, oh, she is so pretty. And I turned to this lady who I thought, I remember thinking she's my aunt. And I, and I asked her, I said, who is this little girl? And she says, well, that's your daughter. Although the dream made a deep impression on Loretta, she put it in the back of her mind. I kept thinking, I don't want any more kids because I've got four and I don't want another one. But when Chad told her about the little sister he knew was waiting to come to their family, destiny was bound to take its course. Loretta gave birth to her fifth child, Jenica. It was indeed a little girl and the very one she had seen in the dream. Incredible as it seems, the pre-birth study has shown children all over the world telling the same stories of a life in a realm beyond our wildest expectations, a life before they were born. Most of these children describe eagerness to come to Earth, but a sense of forlornness over leaving a loving heavenly home. Others describe um, leaving a celestial sphere that is filled with light and love and peace, uh, traveling through space, seeing the Earth off in the distance. But most of us can't even remember our first years of childhood, let alone before we were born. That is part of life, says Sarah Heinz, 
author of Coming from the Light. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross talks about this line right here, which most people have. And she said, that's where the angel put her finger on you before you were born to erase the memory of your pre-mortal life. Generally, this memory begins to fade at around age five. Taken from the point of view that life before life exists, the Heinzes speculate that we even have a choice over our destinies before we come to Earth. I do believe we have a choice and even choose our parentage and the places on the Earth that we come to. There are things that cannot be experienced in the spiritual realm of our heavenly home that we have to come here and go through in order to continue our progression, our understanding. I believe we're shown our earth life before we experience it through the foreknowledge of God. And a deja vu is actually a memory of that foreknowledge. And remember little Jenica, who was so eager to be born to Loretta and her family. There is yet another story. She's about two, three years old. She starts saying, Grandma Liz told me this, and Grandma Liz told me that. And, and, and I asked her one day, I says, who's Grandma Liz? She says, oh, she took care of me before I came here. And I says, well, what did Grandma Liz look like? She says, oh, she was a, she says, she was a nice lady, and she had long, dark hair. Loretta couldn't figure out who Jenica was referring to and didn't think much about it. But one day, visiting a cemetery, something inexplicable happened. We were driving up there, and she just started getting ballistic. <laughs> I, she's, Grandma Liz, Grandma Liz. And, I'm like, and my mother-in-law didn't believe me about her talking about Grandma Liz. And she says, what is this about Grandma Liz? I, says, I don't know. Jenica just jumped right out of the truck and started running. And I was so scared. I thought, what is going on? So I got out of the truck, and she had run right to this headstone, and it said Elizabeth Curl on it. And on it was a picture of a woman with long, dark hair. But I thought, that is so odd. And then she never talked about Grandma Liz after that. It was just odd. It's fair to accept that children often get carried away with their imaginations. After all, that's what childhood is all about. But with the enormous amount of research collected to substantiate this new phenomena, much like early near-death studies, isn't it worth listening more closely next time? For all we know, in these children's stories might lie all the answers we are so desperately looking for. Then I saw another angel flying in midair and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. In a near-death experience, people have claimed a journey to the other side, where it is incredibly peaceful and serene. But not everyone who returns from the edge of death comes back with those feelings. There are some whose life-after-death encounters were full of darkness and torment. What they saw and lived to tell about was a glimpse of eternal damnation. Richard, keep my wedding rings and tell Alex and Jacob how much I loved them and that this is not their fault. 
I can't do this anymore. I love you. Please understand. I just can't do this anymore. Suicide. The final act of those who feel life's problems are so overwhelming that the only way they can cope is by ceasing to cope entirely. Angie Finnamore was such a person. But during her suicide attempt, Angie discovered the turmoil she was facing in this life was nothing compared to that which awaited her in the afterlife. Hell is a matter of suffering, and I was in hell long before I took my life. Where I went was just a manifestation of what I was already experiencing. I wanted so badly just to end my life and to be done. And what I found was that I took all that with me and it was multiplied, just intensified beyond anything that we could, we even have the power of understanding in this life. And so it was, it was absolutely the worst thing I could do. There was, there was no escape. Angie was the product of a dysfunctional home. Her mother left early on, and Angie assumed the responsibility of taking care of her younger sister and her father, an alcoholic. The young girl carried out her new role as best she could, but the situation began to deteriorate, and eventually Angie became a victim of psychological abuse, sexual abuse, and was consumed with feelings of utter worthlessness. At 19, Angie attempted to neutralize her ongoing mental anguish by getting married and having children. But she soon realized that having a family of her own would not free her from her secret misery. I had fought depression for years and feelings of self-loathing that went, went along with how I'd been raised. and, and I felt like I was a horrible mother. I felt like I was dooming my children to a horrible existence. And I felt like I was actually going to be doing my family a favor by leaving them. Initially, Angie thought death would take her to a better place, an idea which had been confirmed by her stepmother. She had gone up to the corner of the room and, and seen her body when she had um, suffered a a car accident. She had talked about being embraced by love and, and warmth and peace and not wanting to return back to her body. But such a tranquil transition would not be the case for Angie. My experience was completely different than anything I'd ever heard about. I had a concept of hell, but this was, this was nothing like what I was anticipating at all. Traditionally, hell has been thought of as the final destination for unrepented sinners and evildoers. Images of lost souls suffering an existence of eternal torment in a pit of fire are familiar. But Angie's experience of the netherworld was not one of physical suffering. Instead, she found hell to be a place of unrelenting emotional distress. Angie's journey into the abyss began one cold January morning when after failing to end her life by slashing her wrist, she took an overdose of pills and laid down on a couch to die. When I was dying, I could feel this tremendous energy encompass me and I could feel my, my spirit and my body separating. And it was, 
very powerful and far more real than anything I've experienced in this life. As her spirit left her body, Angie became aware of images racing toward her. What I saw was actually my very first memory, and that was of being born. And I saw my mother looking at me and cradling me, and then I went through every moment of my life just exactly as I had lived it, only I felt everybody's feelings. I felt it from everybody's perspective, and I had a completely renewed understanding of what my life had been like and what my parents had really been like and what they were trying to do. And I found it very interesting that my mother uh, was such a significant part of my life. I'd forgotten most of my memories with her because she had left when I was nine. And um, most importantly, I think I understood that she loved me. As Angie continued to look back on her life, she began to sense that she wasn't alone. I could feel a presence with me. I could feel a person with me. I knew he was male, and I knew he was viewing my life with me. Eventually, Angie's review of her life ended as it began with her suicide. I went all the way to the point where I was lying there on the couch, and at that point, I was surrounded by darkness. Angie then felt herself descending into another plane of existence, where she became aware of other disembodied spirits who had chosen the path of self-destruction. They were all kind of mumbling to themselves, completely self-absorbed, caring nothing about anybody else there or um, about anything but themselves. What was going on was that these people were reliving this worst experience over and over and over again, reliving this agony that they were in, this turmoil, whatever it was, that, that had caused each of them to take their lives. Angie, as well, might have been doomed to this ironic existence for all eternity had she not been called upon. I heard a voice. And it said, is this what you really want? And I, I looked to see where the voice was coming from. The words had come from above. I could see a pinpoint of light that looked just like a little star. And it grew in intensity and came towards me very quickly. But the light wasn't a star. It was a being who was made of light. And as he approached, I realized that this was God. I didn't have to be told. It was like the universe reverberated his name. And um, then he said, you can't take your life. It's not yours to take. And life is supposed to be hard. You have to pass through these things. All of us have done this. And I was filled as he spoke to me with understanding about, uh, about the purpose of life and what we're doing here and how important it is to to think about how, how you treat other people. And um, then I felt another presence standing next to him. And I realized it was the same being that had been next to, next to me during my life review. Though Angie could not see this second presence, she sensed an inexplicable connection with him. I could feel this incredible love and peace and compassion coming from him and pain as well, and I knew that this was for what I had done. And then I heard him say, and I still couldn't see him, but I heard him say, 
don't you understand? I've done this for you. And when he said those words, I understood that I was in the presence of the Savior of the world. And I could feel what he had done for me. I was taken into his, into that experience, into when he suffered for me. And I caught that moment of his life and understood that this was a very real and little thing that had happened. And um, then I was shown what would happen to my children if I were to take my life and remain dead. And my oldest son in particular was harmed so terribly by the grief and the pain that he would have to suffer through his life that he was rendered incapable of even completing his mission here successfully. With the knowledge of the potential fate of her children, Angie's desire to die disappeared. And it was at that point that I, I was ready to come back. I just, uh, I think I just needed to understand that my life is not my own, that what, we, what we're doing here is so important and every life that we touch is, is important. Angie's return to her body was instantaneous. When I came back, I rushed very quickly through the darkness, and uh, when I opened my eyes, I was lying on the couch, and uh, I could feel that I was, I could feel all the pain uh, that I'd experienced, the drugs that I had taken, and uh, my husband was coming through the front door at the same time. Looking back on the incident, Angie now realizes how she came to a place where she felt the need to kill herself. I didn't get there because other people had done things to me as much as that I had chosen not to overcome the things that are intentionally given to us, problems, things that we need to overcome so that we can grow. I still have trials that I have to overcome, but the important thing is to find happiness and to actually make happiness. Recently, Angie gave birth to her third child, David, and the happiness which his presence has brought to her is clear. I've often wondered how come I was permitted to come back. And all I can really say about that is that I am filled with gratitude that I was. I don't know for sure. Um, all I know is that um, I still had purpose here and uh, that I was important, especially to my children. In her book, Beyond the Darkness, Angie chronicles her most amazing journey and details the information she was given about a scheme to land us all in hell. One of the things that I was told is that there is a being of darkness, that he's very organized and that he has concourses of dark angels that assist him. And their main purpose is to thwart the plan of God, to direct those of us who are here in mortality to do harmful things. But because of Angie's harrowing experience, she knows she can avoid the plans of the Prince of Darkness by living her life in the light. And by doing so, her life has improved immeasurably. Yeah, life is great, and being in the light is wonderful. Although they are rare, we've seen that miracles can happen, or do they occur more often than we think? Could our concern for the more ordinary things in life cause the miraculous to go unnoticed? Just think, 
Right now, somewhere in the world, a miracle is happening. Who knows? It might just be the one you've been looking for. Thank you for joining us.